I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTay. And I'm Helen Thompson. For this Christmas week, we've got a special episode for you. Quite a few of you have asked over the last few months what our favorite books are or books that have helped us understand something about the world. So what we've done is we've picked two of our all-time favorite novels that share the same kind of themes of empire and nationalism and loss and also share the same historical starting point. And the novels are Joseph Roth's The Radetzky March, published in 1932, and Giuseppe Tomasi, The Lampedusa's The Leopard, published posthumously in 1958. On the 11th of May, a group of armed men landed at Marsala. According to latest reports, the band numbers about 800 and is under the command of Garibaldi. When these brigands set foot on land, they took every care to avoid an encounter with the royal troops and moved off apparently towards Castel Vetrano threatening peaceful citizens and looting, led personally by General Garibaldi. Garibaldi! So, Helen, we've been chatting over the weekend and discovered something about these two books that have both been favourites of ours and we've talked about privately over the years. And it's that they share this historical beginning or opening and we neither of us had sort of placed the two things together so what is it what's striking is when you go back and think about them as a pair which i'd never i think quite done before is that ross novel starts in june 1859 and lampedusa's novel starts in may 1860 right uh, and the connection between them is that ross novel is starting with the Battle of Solfanino, which is a battle which the Austrians lose to combined forces of the Kingdom of Sardinia and Piedmont, allied to the French under Louis Napoleon, and that results in the loss 
of a significant part of the Kingdom of Lombardy and Venetia, which has been part of the Austrian Empire, mm. to the Piedmont forces. And emboldened by that, the king there encourages Garibaldi to launch the invasion of Sicily, which is the exact point in which Lampedusa's novel begins. And it's pretty difficult to see how it is would be possible for this invasion of um, Sicily to happen without the Piedmont success in yeah. 1859. Um, so they're both these books about an old order falling away, but the very thing that's eating away at the old Austrian order is the failure of Austria there is what's going to come then into Sicily. Yeah, it's amazing. I, n- neither of us had placed the two things together, so you couldn't have the leopard if you didn't have the Radetzky march. Certainly not in the way in which history actually happened. I mean, you could argue about whether there was some inevitability to Italian unification regardless. But if we look at the actual historical sequence of events, the leopard is dependent upon the Radetzky march. It's amazing. It's amazing that. So let's start with the Radetzky march then. So written by Joseph Roth. Joseph Roth is born in 1894 in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. uh, And he publishes the Radetzky March in 1932, originally in German, 1933, a year later, in English. And it follows three generations of the Trotter family. And the Trotters are Slovenian peasant family by background, but they're raised to the Austrian aristocracy after the grandfather of the novel saves the emperor's life in the Battle of Solfanino that you mentioned. The novel then follows the three generations down. So it follows the son who becomes district commissioner. So a kind of fixture of the imperial bureaucracy, a very important person. And then the grandson who is then joins the army as a cavalry officer, disgraces himself. And, you know, spoiler, if you don't want to know this, maybe switch it off or turn it down for a second, dies pointlessly at the end of the novel in a skirmish at the front with Russia at the outbreak of the yeah, First the Battle World of War. And, and actually, in both novels, this sort of looming catastrophe of the First World War hangs over it very, very obviously. And the, and the more you read it, when you go back, and reread it. It's just there. It's like it's in the atmosphere, isn't it? Hanging over both of them. Yeah, I think what's interesting in the Rudetsky march, if we try and start there, is the fact that in Galicia, which is the province of the the part of the um, Austrian Empire, where there's a significant Jewish population as well, mm-hmm. which is an important theme in the. Because Roth is Jewish himself. Absolutely. And he is that in Galicia, they have a sense that the war's coming before it ever arrives. This is the place where it doesn't seem any surprise to anybody that Austria and Russia are going to end up fighting each other. They're kind of in the twilight land. So parts of Galicia are in, in modern Ukraine, actually. And Roth touches on this in some of his short stories that follow. Because I remember when I went back to look at it, I, I discovered that the town that a subsequent short story called "The Emperor's Bust" is is based in uh, in 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 a part of Galicia that's now Ukraine, Western Ukraine. So it was being bombed by the Russians not very long ago, and it was just hard to then place that as Austria. But you've got to get your your mind back into this world that Roth, I think, manages to capture just so kind of evocatively of all of these different 
peoples that he would call them, not nations, within the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the time. I think there's in the Radetzky March, the regiment that the grandson ends up serving in is made up mostly of Romanians and Ukrainians, but is then based in Slovenia, I think, or Hungary. So you have this sense, again, of this multinational empire that exists, and it's got this imperial bureaucracy that's that ha- hangs over it. I mean, I read it and couldn't help thinking of Britain the whole time, you know, in this... Because uh, I, I think a lot of people, when they, they think about the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, they think of the EU, whereas I immediately was thinking of Britain and you kind of, you know, Irish regiments and those kind of things, things that are hanging the whole uh, state together. Uh, but seem to be kind of falling away a bit. I think one of the interesting things about the beginning in this respect, and it's a really sharp contrast with the beginning of the leopard here, is that you don't have any sense really of the fact that the battle that has just occurred is a complete disaster for the Austrians. It starts with an individual story, this Slovenian peasant who has pulled the emperor to the ground um, and taken a bullet for yeah. him and saved the emperor's life. And then the emperor in gratitude and the empire in some sense in gratitude have made him the hero of Solfanino. Yeah. But there is, there's no possibility of heroism except for saving the life of this emperor, Yeah, Franz Joseph II. And notably the novel ends with the historical death of Franz Joseph being put together with the death of the grandson yeah. of the hero of Solfanino. So it's all it's all for nothing. Yes. Yes. Uh, in that sense. And the sense that actually the nationalist challenge to the Austrian Empire has just really begun with a ferocity that is in the end never going to go away. With the with the loss in Solfanino. With the loss of a significant part of the, the kingdom of Lombardy, Venetia. The rest of that kingdom is lost later in the eighteen um sixties. That isn't there at the beginning of the Radetzky March at all. And I think you can see how Roth really like wants to hold up still somehow an ideal of Austria hmm. that even though there's this imminent disaster coming, which is there all the way through the novel. There's still some sense in which he wants to say there is an Austria that is enduring through these years. Yeah, and he sort of hints at the fakeness of this sort of heroism because there's a bit at the start where the hero who is he's a lieutenant but he's not he's an infantry lieutenant so he's a sort of he's certainly not part of the one of the grand units and he drags the emperor off his horse and pulls him down to save him and then gets a bullet in the shoulder isn't it but he acts on instinct when he sees the emperor looking through a, a kind of, I can't remember the name, a spyglass or some description at the front facing him, the Italian front. And he uh, he realizes that this is a you know an act of folly and just bring, and brings him down. So nothing about it is particularly heroic, but certainly not for the emperor. But then this story gets spun up in these children's books, doesn't it, that says oh, he's not an infantry lieutenant, he's a cavalry lieutenant and he's gone charging in with the emperor and he's killing all of these opposition (laughs) uh, enemy forces and it's this fantastic act. And when he sees this in print... He sees it in his son's history book. Yeah, and he's appalled by it. And because he has an idea of of Austria as... uh, And and particularly the emperor as a kind of... uh, you know, a, a true, it, it represents truth and honor and dignity and all of these things. And so he goes to see the emperor 
and says, you know, have you seen this book? It's a lie. It's a lie. And the emperor says, come on now. It does us both good. It looks great for both of us. Let's put it to bed. And then he gives him more honours. But he, he can't have? put it to bed. No. I think that's the interesting thing is that lie really, it kind of, in one sense, spiritually destroys it does. The, the hero. Because he knows he's not. He knows really. he's not, yeah. And he, the hero, and he can't bear the idea that, that history books are going to tell something other than what really happened that yeah. day. And he quits. He quits the army and he goes back and he he's destroyed as well because a, he's not a cavalry. So he, he doesn't feel like he's part of that elite. And the fact that he's been raised to the uh, to become a baron means he's, his relationship with his own kind of peasant father is destroyed. And that's a, a sad moment where the peasant father would always speak to him in Slovenian. But as soon as he sees he, his son returns with this high honor, he's turned into a captain and then I think, and then a, a major, I think he retires as a major as another payoff for accepting the lie. The father speaks to him in German because he feels it would be too kind of uh, it wouldn't befit him to be, to speak in Slovenian. And so it, his relationship dies, and I don't think he ever sees his father again at that point. God, I mean, it's it's a sort of crushing point of the book. But I was thinking about that and thinking about the kind of the myths of nationalism and empire, like both of them require these myths to survive, symbols or whatever, and you have to believe in them. And it's this kind of, it's the belief that's important. They, they both rest on something that's fake. I think what is really interesting in this respect about the way in which Roth sets this up is you could argue that actually the way that he opens the book is its own lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you think he knows that? I, I think in a way that he perhaps does. Yeah. Uh, in the sense, it's in such sharp contrast to what he's done going to describe at the end about the battlefield in in Galicia, in which the grandson dies, because this was an incredibly bloody um, battle at, at Solfanino. Mm. Uh, it was the last time in European history that the armies were all commanded on the field by the head of state. So the, the Franz Joseph himself, who we obviously mentioned, was already there, but Louis Napoleon and King Victor Emmanuel of the Kingdom of Sardinia, Piedmont. And the bloodiness of the battle and these bodies strewn all over the battlefield because it lasted, it was a one-day battle, is what drove a Swiss businessman who witnessed the carnage to form the Red Cross. And that's quite an important part of the story of the beginning of the Geneva Convention. I mean, he wrote, in because he wrote a book about it, Henri Dunant, his name, he wrote, on June the 25th, the sun illuminated one of the most horrific sights imaginable. And obviously that is all completely going to be replicated on a whole other scale yeah. in the slaughter in the First yeah, World and, War. But and, it's kind of like that Europe's heading to this moment of like death and destruction. And, and Radetzky is starting with a kind of construction of a myth of a yeah. hero out of it. And the hero himself won't accept yeah. the mythologizing of it because right it's based that, on a lie. Yeah, and you're right that the book doesn't really paint that. It's... It, I, I, trying to envision it now and it's like some of his uh, comrades go down and the trotter steps forward into the breach and he's firing away and it's it is romanticized you're right it's certainly mythologized and then the rest of the novel then follows austria as it starts to kind of disintegrate austria hungary this dual monarchy there's a bit here i thought i had 
read out, which I think captures kind of one of the, the principal themes of the book, which is about the rise of nationalism. And I, and I think for me, why this book was always so revelatory in a way is, A, I think it was the first conservative novel that I've read, if that's a fair description of it, that gets at a kind of conservative idea that actually, you know, progress, we're not progressing to something better but actually it holds up an idea of a of something that existed before that i i suppose i instinctively assumed was supposed to be bad you know in empire within europe and it holds it up as something better than what came and that nationalism was a uh that you know the states that followed weren't inevitable but they were there was something bad about them there was something destructive about them and i and i suppose this section gets at that where uh Herr von Trotter, so this is the son of the hero, who's now a district commissioner, and he's watching the empire sort of crumble a bit. But this is before the war, so it's only kind of happening almost spiritually, I guess, rather than physically. He says, I don't understand. What do you mean the monarchy doesn't exist anymore? And he, here he's talking to a friend of his who's more cynical. And this friend says, of course, taken literally, it still exists. We have an army, and he nods at the lieutenant, and we have an officialdom with a nod back at the district commissioner. But it is falling apart as we speak. As we speak, it's falling apart. It's already fallen apart. An old man with not long to go, and he's talking here about the emperor, a head cold could finish him off. He keeps his throne by the simple miracle that he's still able to sit on it. But how much longer, how much longer? The age doesn't want us anymore. The age wants to establish autonomous nation states. People have stopped believing in God. And nationalism is the new religion. And that's the kind of, that is the theme that runs all the way through and will in time, as the, the, the novel sort of suggests, destroy the empire, which it does after its defeat, which I guess that the defeat in the First World War is akin to the defeat at the opening battle, but just on a grander scale that it can't survive. Yeah, I mean, I think that the point at the beginning of the, the first um, battle in 1859 is that it's foreshadowing what's to come. It doesn't actually need to mean the end of the mm. monarchy for Austria. It doesn't in some sense need to mean the end of Austria as an idea. Yeah. And after all, it's only in eighteen sixty seven that the dual monarchy is created as a way of dealing with the Hungarian problem. So it's just kind of yeah. a succession of these challenges f first coming from like what do you do about these people who want to call themselves Italians now? Yeah. What do you then do about the Hungarians? And it's going to be what do you do about a succession of other people? Their Scottish devolution in, moments. <laughs> including, obviously, later events in, in Bosnia, given that it's in Sarajevo, the crisis is going to precipitate the First World War comes. And I think, from Ross's point of view, particularly as a Jew, that he wants to see the cosmopolitanism of yes. the empire yeah. as what makes this is a safe place for him as a, a Jew. Uh, and he understands that the world in which there are nation states is going to be a world in which there isn't going to be a Jewish nation state in yeah. Europe. And obviously this has got like some profound like consequences for the future history of the 20th century in the second half of the 20th century. But I think that it's notable that in the sequel to the Radetzky March in the Emperor's Tomb, 
which is set in the 1930s mm. and culminates in the Anschluss between Germany um, and Austria, that Roth, I think, is a lot less convinced by the ideal of Austria as a cosmopolitan place. Oh, really? That he becomes much more of the view that at the heart of the empire has always stood a certain kind of greater German nationalism. Yep. It may be that it can be contained by someone like Franz Joseph, mm-hmm. but that it's been there waiting to to spill out. But I think that in Radetzky March, that isn't the case. He has one of the characters sort of have this fuming. I mean, I think it's the Czechs that he particularly yes, fumes about. Yes, he like does, a, yeah. At one point, these nationalities that are causing all the problems. Yeah, but he blames them for making the very idea of nationalism, a nation yeah. he took to be rebellious, stubborn and stupid, and on top of everything else, probably responsible for the invention of nationalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in that sense, it, it is a, a really quite anti-nationalist book, but I don't yeah. think that, or, or at least I think that in, in Emperor's Tomb, that the nationalist critique is directed against the idea of Austria itself, particularly its relationship to Germany too. But I think there is a sense, though, that the empire is being overwhelmed by the nationalism problem, even though it's completely, as I say, absent in what's described about the consequences of Salfonino, but also by this looming confrontation with Russia. Yeah. So it isn't just a nationalist problem, it's a geopolitical problem. And one that an Austria which is very good on symbols, there's a great scene played out in the front of um, St. Stephen's Cathedral when the emperor's coming where you can see the kind of like the majesty of it all but Mm. it's hollow and it's going to be absolutely useless in dealing with the geopolitical problem it's interesting i after reading the novel i read a a book called the habsburg empire by the historian peter judson and he tries to make a kind of revisionist case i guess that it wasn't as hollow as Roth came to sort of see it and that it didn't disintegrate because it was illegitimate or a kind of relic of a bygone era. Like it could have become Britain and carried on on the UK. Um, It fell apart because in its desperation to survive in World War One, it basically, he argues, undermined its multinational um, legitimacy uh, and became a kind of Austrian autocracy. I mean, that's kind of the... that's not so far away from what Roth is saying in that, you know, actually when push comes to shove, it revealed its kind of Austrian core. And, you know, that where does authority lie? Authority lies in Vienna. And when they have to, when they have to survive, they will become an Austrian autocracy to survive. Yeah. And I think that this gets to the central part of the Hungarian issue in this, in that there's a really revealing scene in the July of 1914 when news of the assassination has reached mm. the soldiers, I think, it, uh, and the Hungarians all react sort of by, by celebrating because mm. Franz Ferdinand really did not like the the Hungarian part of the dual monarchy, and the Hungarians, one of the Hungarian characters says, "Oh, there'll be more heirs." <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> uh, and the Hungarian um, government was very opposed to getting involved in the First World War, and I think that the idea that uh, that this Austria could have survived the nationality problem. You can perhaps make that argument in relation to some parts of Austria, but I think the hungry aspect of it is a lot harder to make that argument in relation to. And I think that what Radetzky 
does so well is that although it's done in quite indirect and like subtle ways, is tying the way in which the nationality issue is dealt with to this looming Russia yep. question. And the fact that Austria is ill-equipped to, to fight this war with Russia. Now, they lose Galicia in 1915, and they get it back later with the Germans. Mm. But that then gets us into the fact that they need German help in order to... Uh, survive. Yeah. And that gets us on to another battle, which is going to set us up for talking about the leopard, because this is the battle in the First World War in which Lampedusa, the author of the leopard, is taken prisoner and held prisoner in Hungary for the rest of the uh, war. And I think that experience is part of what frames the way in which Lampedusa deals with the First World War. Absolutely. So let's turn to the leopard after the break. And perhaps I should just finish this section with the end of uh, the Radetzky March, which finishes with the First World War being declared. And, it, and you have the declaration of war being read out. The guard with his wooden legs stood at the front of his little hut surrounded by people and a gleaming black and yellow poster was pinned on the door. The first words of it, black on yellow, were legible from far off. They stood like heavy roof beams over the heads of the assembled crowd. They said, to my peoples. Peasants in short, strong-smelling sheepskins, Jews in flapping greenish-black caftans, Swabian farmers from German enclaves in green loden suits, middle-class Polish merchants, craftsmen and civil servants thronged uh, the hut of the excise yard. Each of the four walls had one one of the large posters on it, each in a different local language, each beginning with the emperor's address, to my peoples. And then, and so that, that captures it again, but then... The son immediately dies. The very last scene, obviously, as well, as the emperor is dead. Exactly. The son dies. His son was dead. His job was over. The world had ended. And I think it's that world that just that we just talked about. And the father dies. The son of the hero, Herr von Trotter, couldn't have outlived the emperor. Don't you agree, doctor? I don't know, replied the doctor. I don't think either of them could have outlived Austria. And that's the conclusion. So after the break, we'll turn to the next book, The Leopard. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome back. 
So, Helen, your choice is The Leopard by Lampedusa. I always struggle to say the first name, but <laughs> but tell us about The Leopard and, and the author, because it really is quite a sort of unique story in itself, isn't it? It is. He is of the same generation as Roth. He was born in 1896, so two years after Roth. He was born in Palermo in uh, Sicily. He died in July 1957, and... He spent the last years of his life writing this novel, but he couldn't find a publisher mm. for it. No one wanted to publish it. So it was published posthumously. So he never came to know what a success it was. And he creates this character whom he calls the prince, who is a Sicilian prince born around, I think, around 18 and who will die in 1883. And this character seems to be part his great grandfather and part at least psychologically himself mm -hmm. yeah and so he sees himself in some sense as the last of the of this aristocratic dynasty i think he dies in rome doesn't he not even in, yeah in well th th there's quite a few palaces in this right yeah. novel yeah. including like one in in palermo itself where he was born and expected to die mm -hmm. and that palace was destroyed by allied bombing in 1943 mm. and as i already said lampedusa was a prisoner of war in the first world war he was captured after the battle of caporetto which is a another i think significant link between the novels because it's a story about the that battle is a story about the austro-hungarian empire too so for about two and a half years, Italian, since Italy had entered the war, Italian troops and the Austrian troops had been in a stalemate. Mm -hmm. And then thinking that there's a possibility if the Italians push through, thinking that at that moment, if Austria falls, that will be the end of Austria, the German general Ludendorff sends in German help. Mm. And that changes the balance of power completely and the Italians just retreat and somewhere between six about probably about 600,000 men either like surrender capture deserted and Lampedusa is one of them so he has this very direct experience of the first world war and then this palace which for him is a symbol of his life mm. is destroyed by allied bombing in the second world war so even though this novel finishes in 1910 Mm. very much the world wars loom over it. Yeah, There is an omniscient narrator. Most of the time that narrator tells the story from the prince's point of view. Yeah, But there are these moments when he's in the future, the narrator, I mean by that, is in the future. So he comments that the equivalent palace in Palermo is going to, where the prince lives of the novel, is going to be destroyed oh, yeah. by Allied bombing. And he refers in a kind of strange way in the sense i mean strange by the sense it's not entirely clear what he's trying to get at but the narrator looks forward in a grim sense to the conflict that will occur between the italians and the austrians in the alps and in that sense repeat the conflict that had occurred although not that time in the alps but between austria and italy at, at solfanino which as we've said this novel starts in the aftermath yeah of so on on that, what happens at the beginning of the story is that Garibaldi has landed in Sicily 
with this volunteer force called the Red Shirts, mm-hmm. helped by the the British Navy to make the landing. There, there, there's a couple. There's a, oh, scene, there's, there's a scene. Yeah, there's a scene where the the British officers are like looking out from the prince's palace over the bay, and the prince must decide what to do mm. about the prospect of this new Italy, and he decides that he's going to line himself up with it. Yeah. In that his nephew, who is much more favoured by him than any of his own children, yeah. a character called Tancredi, who is a pretty important part of the story, he goes off and volunteers to fight with Garibaldi and the prince gives him gold money, coins, yes. in order to go and... Just to sustain to him, doesn't it? And that scene brings about this moment which provides the novel's most famous quotation. I think it's often misunderstood, as we're going to talk about. But Tancredi says that in order for everything to stay the same, everything must change, or puts it actually the other way around. Mm. Everything must change in order for everything to stay the same. He says that to his uncle. And, And what he's got in mind at that is that if they want to not have a republic... They want to continue with a monarchy, yeah, and protect their uh, landed and rights. protect their landed rights. That they have to line themselves up with the new forces, and the story, in a way, then is the hope that the prince puts in Tancredi, mm. including his willingness to allow Tancredi to marry the granddaughter of a, a peasant whose father is is the mayor of a, a place in the more in the in the countryside, not in. Um, Palermo. With kind of mob overtones, yeah, I always thought. absolutely, with mob overtones. But also, he's made himself extraordinarily rich. Yeah. And Tancredi, for the prince, is going to be the person who is going to ensure that the new bourgeois world, if we just put it in straight class terms, is going to be aristocratic, yeah. essentially. Uh, and that's why he allows this marriage. But the story of the novel is the marriage fails, mm-hmm. and the prince who refuses himself to be part of the new Italy like he won't take a seat in the Senate mm-hmm. of the, the the Italy that has been uh, created, realises at the end of his life that his attempt to preserve his world has utterly failed. Yeah. And in the final scenes of the of the novel, which is set in 1910, as I've, I've said, one of his daughters basically takes the prince's dog who's been dead a long time and whose body has been stuffed throws it in the air and it all just turns to dust yeah and that's the old order because i I mentioned this to you when we were talking about it earlier which is that the i think lampedusa himself says that the dog is the symbol of the book it's the most important symbol in in the book and it's so uh, full of life at the beginning of the book which is set in this this place that I think we often completely forget about this this kingdom of the two Sicilies this Bourbon kingdom which is centered in Naples but it has a, a it's sort of split between Naples and Palermo isn't it and that is the thing that it destroyed by Gab- Garibaldi's invasion which you can understand why the prince thinks that he might be able to sustain the aristocratic order because it's the it's the Piedmont king. Emmanuel who is coming in. So it's not a republic. It's swapping one kingdom for a new kingdom. That's the that's the idea. And people like him will be then uh, placed in the Senate. And so he's very 
suspicious and he doesn't welcome this arrival. He doesn't like what's coming, but he kind of accepts it because he thinks it's a way to sustain his world. And at the start, you have this scene where the dog, which is this huge hound from memory, wolfhound is it, and he's he's running around the country estate, which is somewhere in the interior of Sicily. And he's running around this estate and he's like full of life and he's ripping things up, isn't he, from the garden, I think, from memory. Yeah. But the prince loves the dog. He allows him to get away with it because it's full of life and it's uh, energy and kind of slightly chaotic. And that seems to be essentially what he's saying. That's what Sicily is. That's the world that he sits atop of. And as you say, by the end, the dog is dead for decades, stuffed to try and keep the pretense alive. And the sisters are just sitting in a drawing room, I think, somewhere in Palermo, in one of their mansions, mourning the fact that they never married Tancredi or Tancredi, because she'd fallen in love with him early. But he had um, refused to uh, see that marriage, which would have been the old way. And he'd instead allowed Tancredi to marry money to try and keep things going. So it's all very, it's all very cynical. But at that point, yeah, the dog has been stuffed and kept uh, there, and then is and then is t- turns to dust. The other really important scene at the start is again, it's back in this estate uh, where the prince, or there is a dead body that is discovered, and it's the dead body of one of the Bourbon soldiers trying to defend. Um, the kingdom of the two Sicilies from the invading Garibaldi forces. And it's found on the estate. It's found in the garden under a lemon tree. And the soldiers, it looks like the soldier has come back, chosen to come back to die Uh, there. And I think we should just dwell on that a bit because I think it's really uh, important in terms of the sense that this novel is actually about the destruction of Europe as a culture and a civilization in the First World War. So uh, and, and what's the symbol there, the lemon, the lemon well, tree? Well, I think it's a bit more than that. I think it's more... I think, well, I think that this gets to the heart of, in a way, what I, I think the novel is about, which is the fact that the European aristocratic order that the prince represents does not do anything to prevent the disaster of the first world to prevent yeah. the disaster of the first world war mm-hmm. and that it won't have anything to say to all those soldiers who are going to die mm-hmm. in the first world war and if we, I'll come back to the the question about what happened at the battle of caporetto in a, in a moment but if we just have a look listen to that passage from there the by the time that prince is meditating on this body mm. a month has already passed more than a month and he can't get it out of his mind even though the smell has finally gone from the the garden he is still preoccupied mm. with this and he gets fixated on the idea of like why did the soldier die what could you say to this soldier mm-hmm. that would justify his death so if we just take that passage the narrator describes what's going on in the prince's mind in in this way but the image of that guttered corpse often reoccurred, as if asking to be given peace in the only possible way the prince could give it, by justifying that last agony on grounds of general necessity. And then around would rise other, even less attractive ghosts, dying for somebody or for something. That was perfectly normal, of course. But the person dying should know, or at least feel sure, that someone knows for whom or for what he is dying. The disfigured face was asking just that, And that was where the haze began. 
You died for the king, of course, my dear Fabrizio, obviously would have been the answer of his brother-in-law, Malvika, had the prince asked him. And Malvika was always the chosen spokesman of most of their friends. For the king, who stands for order, continuity, decency, honour, right. For the king, who was sole defender of the church, sole bulwark against the dispersal of property, the sex inventual aim. Fine words, these, pointing to all that lay dearest and deepest in the prince's heart. But there was even so something that didn't quite ring true. The king, all right, he knew the king well, or rather the one who had just died. But the present one was only a seminarist dressed up as a general. And the old king had really not been worth much. But you're not reasoning, my dear Fabrizio, Malvika would reply. One particular sovereign may not be up to it, yet the idea of monarchy is still the same. That was true too, but kings who personify an idea should not, cannot, fall below a certain level for generations. If they do, my dear brother-in-law, the idea suffers too. Exactly. That's such a perfect passage. And I mean, that is... uh... That I can't, I, I can't get that out of my head when I think about. I, I, I keep coming back to it, but I can't help but think of the UK. It talks about when Ireland seceded. You know, there was a, there was an idea of what uh, the UK and Ireland was supposed to be, and it was never true. And that was, in in essence, that's why Ireland seceded. I think in that it was never, there was never a nation that that went across the two islands and you feel the same thing about uh austria-hungary and it's what joseph roth is getting at you know that actually is it true is it is it true or is it just underneath peel it all the way and it's an austrian autocracy and peel away the two uh, kingdom of the two sicilies and you've got a useless king and a kind of corrupt order that's going to turn to dust but i think the interesting thing here though as well is is that it's quite a damning uh, critique of the aristocracy itself mm. in a, that in a way I think makes I think that Lampedusa's book is much much harder on the old world ultimately than Ross mm. book is Ross romanticised it and much more. although that Lampedusa seems to be romanticising mm-hmm. the old world and the prince that actually the prince in the first instance the beginning of the novel stands apart from the other aristocrats in yep. Sicily. I mean, his brother-in-law, but also his first son, go off and do quite reactionary things in trying to defeat um, um, Garibaldi. At the beginning, things that are just vain and um, idiotic. And the prince wants like no part of that. He's quite a severe moral critic mm. of the aristocratic um, order. He has interests that are a long way removed from most of them, particularly his interest in... Uh, astronomy Mm. but I think that the crucial point in the book in this respect is the fact that when the prince has the opportunity to influence the the new Italy when he is offered a seat in the senate someone comes down from Turin to speak to him and he says I am sorry but I can't lift a finger in politics and I think by the end of the novel he realises it's a terrible mistake that actually this idea that everything was going to stay the same as long as everything changed. Mm-hmm. It wasn't everything changed and everything didn't stay. Exactly. The same. Exactly. That's the, and that's the point of the book. And it, but and it's, it's also, the one that gets missed. But it also, it's because part of the reason I think that Lampedusa is saying, which well, I, I don't think I saw this when I read it, but previous times I've read it and I've read it quite a lot of times, is that it's his fault. <laughs> I think that, that is part of what Lampedusa is saying is that it's his fault that, it, that things didn't stay the same because he wouldn't do anything about it. He wouldn't take any responsibility mm. for the future. And I think if you then 
So is that a that's a critique of Europe's aristocracy itself in not stopping the First World War or not? I think it is. Maybe I'm reading far too much into Mm. it here, but I think there is a way of of reading it like that. In that, there's a moment, there's a ball that happens in a set piece, tremendously well done in the film. Mm. That happens towards like the end of the novel, and the the bourgeois mayor character comes in and the prince is full of, for a moment of like revulsion yeah. towards oh, he him. Has a, he has a badly tailored suit. Like he, he can't get every, anything right, can but, he? But also he kind of see, he, it's almost like he's kind of seeing, I think, things in terms of Italy's, even conceivably Italy's fascist future, like right. in that yeah. moment. Uh, and then he pulls away from his revulsion out of compassion for because he says everybody's going to die so let's not judge everybody too Hmm. um harshly but if you think about it as this is Lampedusa writing this book in like the 1950s when the whole world that he knew has gone including quite literally his home and he's wrestling with these issues at the end of his life and he's writing about a character who is really his great grandfather certainly in terms of the time Mm -hmm. even though he's putting his own personality into the prince you could i think read it as like saying like well why did he my great grandfather mm. do something yeah to preserve that old world because it's shattered completely and utterly for me and there's a point where the prince says uh something like i will care for my children and my grandchildren maybe but after that who cares yes but he's actually then the great grandson uh, i hadn't yeah. not placed that those two things together and if you then think about what has happened to him in this disaster you know the battle of caporetto and i think that this is the biggest military disaster in italian uh history and if you like then think about his being formed by that experience is is it this new italy that he has the prince character say okay this is the way it will have to be, but actually it completely doesn't work as a nation state. And there's nothing I think that Lampedusa is against the fact that Italy should be. There's nothing that ever, I think, where he turns against the idea of a unified Italian nation state. It's that the wrong people end up in charge of it. But the reason why the wrong people end up in charge of it, I think, is just because the prince to quote his own words, won't lift a finger in politics. It's a, it's a, it's a really, I think, quite sharp critique of the passivity yeah. um, of the aristocratic class and the, the uselessness of just a, a stoical response to these disasters that are unfolding. Yeah, because it's seen as, a again, like Roth, a kind of conservative novel in that it paints this evocative picture of a lost world and is cynical about the new one that's uh, coming to be. But it is far more complicated, as you're saying. It's sharply critical of the old order without thinking that the new order is in is any sense kind of uh, better. And there is a quote, I can't find it. It's at the start where he says, you know, the new Italy has to survive because anything else would be worse. Yeah. But it's a little bit like Churchill's quote about democracy, isn't it, being the sort of the worst of all the others. So he's not calling for that thing to go. He's not seeking to return to what existed before. So it's not reactionary in that sense. He is not a a clean reactionary in that sense. He's always more kind of, there's more depth to him. He's, uh, you know, as you say, he stands apart from the rest of the aristocracy in Sicily. He's well-read. He seems to be slightly detached. I mean, he's very harsh, isn't he, as a sort of the father figure, but he's uh, he takes himself off to his studies. So he's, he's always he's always very different. But it's this, it's this sense of the book that actually the conclusion 
is the most important thing, not that quote that is the one that's pulled out that, you know, and, and it's still used this day to justify some latest change or we have to change things to keep things, uh, to keep things the same. And the whole point of the novel is if you change things, they're not going back. You know, the, you don't keep them the same. You know, he dies realising that. But I think he also dies realising that the old order was so corrupting. Yeah some sense and that actually i think includes the the catholic church's role in the novel we probably haven't got time to go into that in yeah. in any real detail but you know, there is a sense in which the the catholicism all the catholic rituals are, are hollowed yeah. out so at the beginning of the novel it begins with the rosary but actually as soon as that's over mm. then you can see all these pagan tiles oh, and yes. on the ceilings and they really the gods rule i mean this is quite an important thing the pagan gods like rule through the the novel and then at the end of the mm. novel in 1910 the inspectors are coming from the church to basically say that the relics in the family chapel the sisters have created a fakes um yeah and again they've just got to be <laughs> uh discarded so there's very little sense that what's supposed to ground the old aristocratic order has got any foundations um, whatsoever. So, and think in that sense, it's more about the fact that when the new Italy is, is created, responsibility isn't taken for it, hmm. and that's partly an issue for the someone like the prince, but it's also the way in which the, the, those driving unity hmm. behave, because after they've annexed the kingdom of two Sicilies, essentially by military force. They hold a, a referendum yes. to legitimate yeah. the southern incorporation into what is most of what is now most of Italy. Though it's not the final unification doesn't happen until Rome's becomes part of it in eighteen um, seventy. Is they hold this referendum and in Donna Figata, which is the country estate of the prince, the votes come in and there were five hundred and fifteen voters. There were five hundred and twelve voting and the official results say that yes got 512 votes and no got zero the prince has voted yes hmm. but he's on this hunting day out with the town organist who finally confesses to the the prince that he voted no hmm. uh, and that his vote has been obliterated hmm. and the prince who'd been telling everybody who was asking him that they should vote Yes, is really stung when he realises that the town organist has understood something that he hasn't. Mm. And uh, he thinks that something has then killed, the good faith of Italy is killed at the beginning by the fact of this pretense. And in a way, there's a real parallel, I think, between that, the organist protesting about what happened to my no vote uh, and the hero of Salvanino protesting about that history book's wrong. Exactly. It's a lie. Yeah. yeah. In the... Both of them in that sense, I think, I've, I've got a kind of nostalgia for an idea where there was more honour in the old world and that is cynicism that's destroying the new world. But I think in The Leopard, Lampedusa turns that against the prince. The prince ultimately is too cynical himself. Yes, yeah. I hadn't clocked that the first time. Here, here's the passage on that. Italy was born on that sullen night in Donna Fagata, born right there in that forgotten little town, just as much as in the sloth of Palermo or the clamour of Naples. But an evil fairy of unknown name must have been present. Anyway, Italy was born and one could only hope that she would live on in this form for any other would be worse. And yet during that too brief announcement of figures, he had a feeling that something... Someone had died. God only knew in what back alley of what corner of the popular conscience. 
but something had yeah. died. That's the same as in Roth, that his belief in the idea of the emperor and the empire had died the moment that he saw that he was cynically able to accept the lie. And so too, they're accepting the lie there. And that's it. And that's Italy. But I think that's a question. I think in a way, maybe this is a point where we should end because I think it does have some significance beyond this. It isn't, I think, either just about Italy and it's not just about Sicily. It is about Europe. Mm. I think that the ways in which he weaves a lot of things into this novel, the thing that has turned to dust isn't just the dynasty of the prince. Mm. It isn't just aristocratic Sicily. It isn't just like Italy's military effort, you know, the Battle of Caporetto. It's the entirety of European culture, I think, mm. and the leopard that is in ruins. Yeah. And that's what he's writing. And that way I think it matters is that he's writing this book in the middle of the 19th. 50s. Yeah, interestingly, before the new Europe is created. Yeah, but this is a yeah. world before the, the Americans now dominate. And it's American. And when he says where the bomb's coming from, that's oh, going yeah. to destroy his. I mean, when the narrator says where the bomb's coming from, that is going to destroy the palace, which is also obviously destroyed for Lampedusa himself. Uh, it's made in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's completely, uh, and, it, and it's just put in. That it's this is completely where the bomb otherworldly. Comes. It's like it's been, it's come from Saturn or something, mm. isn't it? You know, what's this? You picked out the the quote in your in your notes here that, that they thought themselves eternal, but a bomb manufactured in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was to prove contrary in 1943. <laughs> it's such an odd line, but it's so. I mean, that's in that short sentence you get. Well, that's the future. This is the American world we live in. I've loved this episode. I mean, I love talking about <laughs> the leopard and the Radetzky march and Roth. I could do it endlessly. But I mean, I think we should do another one of these, maybe try and make them regular and pick a pick some more novels. Yeah, I think that when we get to when we get to holiday-ish moments, yes, yeah. we'll come back and try and pick another pair of novels again. Yeah, yeah. Well, if, if anybody's got any ideas, send them in, but uh, we'll get thinking, put our thinking caps on and think of the next, the next two, maybe not so... Uh, so, so downcast or maybe that's reflective of how we how we see the world Helen I don't know well thank you everyone for listening I hope you've had a lovely Christmas please follow and like and share with your family and friends and we'll be back next week with an episode looking back at 2023 that will be out on the 3rd of January so that's Wednesday look forward to that and see you soon and as ever this podcast was produced by you and Daughtry 